chapter 36 today. Um, this material here, a lot of this material in chapter 36 is repeated, or maybe Isaiah's, I might say, is a repeat from 2 Kings chapter 13 and verses following. Uh, basically the same story is, is there. So anyway, uh, this is just another historical account, but... Um, well, wait a minute, it's uh, chapter 18, verse 13. That's what it is, 2 Kings beginning at 18, 13, and it repeats, so that's fine. Uh, in chapters 36 through 39, um, this will wind up sort of our historical study. In other words, these kings were doing this, and Isaiah was prophesying about this and that with these kings and so forth. So that kind of really historical material is going to end after chapter 39. The last two chapters were sort of prophetic, uh, apocalyptic, I think, chapters. And, it, well, you know, the scholars have all kind of opinions about it and everything, but they're kind of inserted there, but we're getting back to history now. So by the time we finish chapter 39 and go into 40, we'll be into a lot more of that glorious language about the suffering servant and the Messiah and a lot of great things like that that we'll get into, right? Um, so, also in chapters 36 through 39, uh, we're dealing with King Hezekiah again, uh, and Isaiah's dealing with him. And in chapters 36 through 39, Hezekiah has three tests. He passes two of them and he fails one of them. Yeah. The first test is uh, here with the attack of Assyria against Jerusalem, which we'll read about here. So the Assyrian army is threatening again, and it looks like, you know, doom for Jerusalem. And uh, indeed, uh, Hezekiah uh, trusts God. Well, next week, we maybe should read these together, but it'll be next week. Hezekiah trusts God, and the Assyrian threat is eased, and he survives. All right? So that's test number one. Test number two, Hezekiah gets sick, like unto death. He calls for Isaiah the prophet. He, I don't remember how it goes exactly, but he prays for him. He trusts God. And he's healed of his his malady. Test number two. Test number three. In chapter 39, some envoys from the king of Babylon come to visit Hezekiah because they heard that he was sick and they wanted to give him some encouragement. <laughs> and Hezekiah then, uh, as these envoys from Babylon are there, shows them all the wealth that he's accumulated in his house. And Isaiah said, what would you show these men? He said, everything I've got. I, basically, Isaiah said, you're a fool, man. 
so uh, in a certain way, the wealth there that was in Jerusalem provided another reason why Babylon should attack Jerusalem, and this leads to the Babylonian captivity, really. So in a certain sense, in the third test, Hezekiah, in a way, I mean, not totally, paves the way for the Babylonian captivity. So he fails test number three, but yet, since God had already predicted the Babylonian captivity, I mean, it's all of a piece, you know. So anyway, these are Hezekiah's three tests. All right, everybody with me so far? Okay. I actually think he failed the second test too, but we can talk about that one. The sickness, the sickness test. Okay. Yeah, I think that was a failure as well. Okay. Illness one. Oh yeah. yeah. All right. But he does remember. It's similar though to uh, David's failure uh, because God judges David after his great sin and says that that I'm going to split this kingdom apart. Wow. But I'll wait until it's after your son. Wow. Uh, Babylon comes in a hundred years after Hezekiah. Okay. So, I mean, God is not cursing Hezekiah. No. But it's, it's similar in that that was a stupid thing to do. Yeah. But you're going to be dead by then. Yeah. And, and Hezekiah is glad that he's going to be able to avoid that. Yeah, he won't be around. All right. <clears throat> um, okay. Uh, verse 1. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent to Rabshakeh, sent the Rabshakeh, uh, from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool and the highway to the washer's field. I like King James better. It says Fuller's Field, which I didn't don't know what Fuller means, but if you look it up, you know, it's a launderer, a guy who does laundry, yeah, yeah. Bleach out the whites and all that, so it's more poetic, but anyway. Um, so, this official from the king of Assyria, who was Sennacherib, this is a title, Rabshakeh, the great, the great one or whatever, stands on this highway to the Fuller's Field. This is the same spot where Isaiah stood to plead with Ahaz earlier on not to place his trust in Assyria. This was way back in chapter 7. Assyria is now standing in the same spot at the very gates of Jerusalem. Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, is now reigning. So uh, I think if, if we don't, uh, maybe I have a quote later on. If we won't listen to what the prophet says, then maybe you'll listen to when the enemy comes and repeats the same words, you know. <clears throat> uh, this is around 701 B.C. is what, what we're talking about. The uh, Assyrian army had come down into Israel pretty much along the Mediterranean coast. Ashdod and then those cities and all that. And they, they'd conquered all those cities. And now they were in a city called Lachish. Uh, this town is southwest of Jerusalem. And Lachish is inland. So they go inland and they're besieging Lachish and it, no doubt they'll take it. And really, uh, once the siege of Lachish is over, only Jerusalem is left. So this is the context for this Rabshakeh guy to come down and be talking with the king, king of Israel. Verse 3. 
And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. I don't really have anything great on this, but this is these names of these men have already been prophesied by Isaiah back in chapter 22, verses 20 through 23. Remember, he said one of them was going to fall down, the other would uh, rise up. And uh, But anyway, these are those guys. I mean, they're showing up again here, these officials uh, in, in Judah. Verse 4, And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Uh, do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Um, notice in verse 4, Rabshakeh says, Thus says the great king of Assyria, and he says, Say to Hezekiah. He doesn't address Hezekiah by his title. In other words, say to King Hezekiah. In other words, just say to this guy over here, Hezekiah, that the great king says this. Uh, and no doubt, in terms of army and power and so forth, I mean, Syria, Assyria was stronger than Israel and so forth. So, kind of a put down of Hezekiah there. Um, say, yeah. It says rebel against me that Assyria already controlled. No, they didn't already control it, but I think that's, that's what the official was saying is look this is coming I mean it's evident we've destroyed all these other cities and we're coming in here yeah nobody can stand against the king of Assyria um, so uh, we'll go on with these arguments here but this official from uh, Sennacherib Rabshakeh is the title he anticipates already uh, all the responses that the Israelites are going to make. He already knows their arguments. So he repeats their arguments and the refutation of their arguments before they can even make the arguments. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to say here, if we want to spiritualize the passage a little bit, that the Rabshakeh represents the devil or the demons. And the demons are smart. They're purely intellectual beings. Uh, and they are real students of human behavior. They can't read your mind, but they can read your facial expression. And they've been doing this with humans for thousands of years, so they pretty much know what makes you tick and, and where you're headed. And they're smart. So the devil already knows the arguments. If you want to argue with somebody, I mean, the devil already knows the arguments. I mean, he knows what you're going to say and what the response is going to be and all this. He's heard it a thousand times before throughout human history. Uh, so, the devil is indeed the prince of this world. If someone would help me with Matthew 4, 8 through 11 and John 14, 30, please. I have Matthew 4. Uh, Matthew 4, 8 through 11, please. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All of these I will give to you, and you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Wow. Notice that Christ 
you know, simply says, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. He doesn't. He does not refute the devil's claim to the, be the prince of all the kingdoms of this world. In fact, he more or less acknowledges this. So we have a strong enemy. John chapter 14, verse 30. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. <laughs> <laughs> so Christ gives the devil a title as the prince of this world. So if Christ gives him that title, who am I to say to take the title away? You know, So that's the way it is. Are there a few places in the Old Testament that suggest the practical purpose of a prince is to judge? Like I remember um, Absalom, was he judging cases? He was, People yes. coming into mm -hmm. the city. Yes. And in the Psalms, are there some that suggest that, maybe not all time, I mean, obviously there's some princes who are just drunkards or whatever, you know, they're rich. But it seems that there's a few places in the Old Testament suggest that princes that the practical purpose of them in the kingdom is to judge cases. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I was just wondering if that's the reason that Satan is called uh, prince. I don't know. I mean, why is he called a prince? Because he runs things. He runs it. Well, and, other he, one, and he's under the king. Yeah. yeah. Well, he does what the king tells him. Yeah. Also. If I'm not mistaken, and if somebody knows correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when Absalom was doing that in the city gates, he was intentionally undermining David's authority. That's true. So he was doing it in a way to yeah, encourage favor yeah, of people. That's so true. I would judge your case because the king is too busy to hear yeah. it. So, so in that way, Absalom was acting exactly like Satan. His type of the yeah. devil. So, yes. So, yeah, the devil is, quote, running things, but he's trying to undermine the authority of God is what he's doing. He's not sovereign, obviously. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is certain influence. God is sovereign, but I mean, He allows the devil to do a lot of stuff. We could, yeah, I've been thinking all. Bell right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been thinking all this week about Job and how God worked with Satan in the sense that He listens and God is truth. He doesn't, you know, He He walks right along with Satan, essentially showing him how wrong He is. Well, you know, yeah. and so, but the, the ramifications well, I think strike all of us. That's know, the right? ultimate yeah. thing. I mean, you know, a simple believer like with faith or a little child with faith can put the devil to flight. I mean, mm -hmm. so that's the, you know, that, so we get that the whole warfare there. Yeah. Yeah. Go, say again, David. The devil. That's it. Is, the devil? Yeah. Is, is there a Bible verse that says that when we actually see Satan someday, We'll wonder at how pathetic he is. Yeah, Something like Isaiah. that. It's in Isaiah. Oh, it's in Isaiah. Yeah, yeah. Is this the one that? Yeah. Is this the man? Is this the one that deceived the nation? What? What a joke. <laughs> yeah. I never get the chapter. I, I don't. It's in Isaiah. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. No, we'll get there. Find find the subhead that says the fall of Lucifer. We will get there. All right. Now I said no. It's a good question. Let's go. Let's go to verse five. Well, I think I think spiritual warfare is is more of a reality than we think it is. Yeah, exactly. That's what I've been thinking about. In personal experience, I know that Walter was there when we we when we were first dealing with you know people that were possessed. So there was a 
period where we were trying to communicate with the devil, or the devil would come and speaking out of them when we were and they would they would lead us off. It's just a rabbit trail. This is what James says. Even even Michael the archangel said the Lord rebuked you. Yeah, he doesn't argue with it. He doesn't argue with it. Yeah. That's what we're doing. Excellent stuff. Don't do what Job's wife said. Curse God is not. Well, and in that verse from John that Jim read, Jesus said, I'm not going to talk. I'm done talking. And the prince of this world is coming. He doesn't talk. No, no, not at all. Wow. Okay. Wow, this is great. Okay. Verse 5. Rabshakeh says, Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? So, this is my question now. Can words win the battle? Jesus says one word. <laughs> I think that's a hymn, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, it, words. It, is it in this, uh, it's, I think it's Hezekiah, where he says uh, not to speak to him in Hebrew. Yes, it's right here in this chapter. Yeah, because he doesn't want the people to hear yeah. why the threats or right. understand them. So, yeah, I mean, it's language can carry the day. Sometimes. Language is very important. Yeah, so I'm going to say no. Words can't win the battle? Words or, do not win the battle. All right, so what else do we need? In Revelation, it talks about those who overcome and those who defeat the devil. That's, it's described in great detail in Revelation 12, and it says how they did it. They did it by the blood of the, the, blood lamb, of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And the word of their testimony. So we have to have the blood of the lamb also. So you have to have yeah. 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 I was sort of assuming that, yeah. but thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a matter of hearing God's word and speaking and, it. And speaking it. That's it. That's it. it. Testifying. That's it. So, yeah. yeah. All right. So, so we don't. We don't agree with Rabshakeh here. I mean, his implicit answer is uh, no. I mean, you know, you, you, we can't just sit up here and talk and you're going to defeat me because we've got a giant army here and we're going to plow through you, man. Like, But uh, no, so we don't agree with him. Uh, verse 6. Behold, you are trusting in Egypt that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. This is Rabshakeh. Isaiah has said the same thing several times. Don't trust in Egypt. It's a weak reed. So here the devil is simply repeating what Isaiah has already said. He's uh, reading it back, as it were, uh, to Hezekiah. Um, you already said Egypt is a symbol for the devil. Well, well you know, so now you've got a double dose for the devil. Yeah. <laughs> Verse 7, but if you say to me, look, he's anticipating all their arguments. He knows what they're going to say. If you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now, notice the Rabshakeh's confusion about the God of Israel. Um... 
it seems that we, I mean, we read various prophetic books and all this. It seems that the Jews had a bad habit of building altars everywhere and maybe offering sacrifices on these altars. And God had said, no, it's in the temple right here in Jerusalem. That's it. So they were always disobeying God, perhaps trying to worship Yahweh. And a lot of times they were building these altars to foreign gods. I mean, through the whole history of Judah and Israel, I mean, they're just doing this all the time. Um, so, I'm going to read another story here. This is um, about Hezekiah's son, a guy named Manasseh, who was generally a bad king. But at the end of his life, he repented, as it were. This is in Second Chronicles uh, 33. Let's see if we can find that. Second Chronicles 33. It's a similar kind of story. Beginning at verse 10, Manasseh's repentance, it says in my Bible. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria. Here we go again. I mean, they're, they're just coming down again, you know. They, who captured Manasseh, look at that, with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. I mean, I see this. I'm just not totally familiar with this story here, but this kind of a precursor of the captivity, as it were. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God. Now he wants to repent. <laughs> then we want to repent. No atheists in No atheists in the foxholes. He entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him. And God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. So he goes back to Jerusalem. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. So now he's a believer. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army and all the fortified cities in Judah. And he took away, here we go, and he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord. Now look at that. The Jews are putting foreign gods' images and altars in the temple. I mean, this is nuts, you know. I mean, that's what they're doing. Was it Rachel or Rebecca? Uh, had the household had idols, idols. Yeah. yeah. Just to be sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord. And Manasseh himself had built a bunch of altars to foreign gods. And in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord. So he's back in the temple now on the one altar, and he offers sacrifices there. Uh, nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. So they repented and reformed in a certain way, which is they weren't offering sacrifices to foreign gods, but only to Yahweh, but still they were doing it in their backyard. And God said, no, it's it, it, in the temple. So it's no, just... It, uh, 
place. Yeah, God said sacrifice only on the altar in the temple. In the temple. That's yeah. the place in Jerusalem. So that they hadn't quite fully recovered yet. But anyway, that's the story about Manasseh. Okay, I'll let um, you talk. Yeah, Rabbi Shekha is just you know, following human logic that if, if one place of worship honors your God, then certainly a thousand places of worship honors Him even more. Even more. Yeah. You know, of course, we're far too modern and sophisticated to focus on numbers like that. We never do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> never focus on numbers, huh? Not much. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's uh, it's almost like faith without works is dead. I mean, this yeah. is a playing out of that principle. Oh, there you go. You know, they can say all day long to a serious <laughs> face, "Look, we trust in Yahweh," yeah. but their actions don't. But show by it. their actions, they don't show it. Yeah. Well, God can make these rocks. Praise yeah. Okay. Let's uh, let's go on to verse. Eight, Rabshakeh says, Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. You can't, don't even have enough fighters to sit on 2,000 horses. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Now, we have subtlety here, I think. Uh, the Lord, Rabshakeh says, oh, you're religious? Okay, well, the Lord told me to do this. Uh, this, is, this is kind of the, uh, the God told me syndrome, which I'm a little bit leery of. Um, but uh, I'm not sure what he's saying here. Uh, you know, I should have looked this. I should have looked this. I should have looked this up in Hebrew. Would somebody look that up if you have Hebrew on that? It's verse ten. The Lord said to me, "Is that Yahweh there?" If, if somebody has that, uh, yeah, it's, it's the all caps Lord. Oh well, okay. Then I'm 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 confounded in what I was going to say. Well, what, what what happens if this guy from Assyria they pray to every god there is that they can think of, and yeah. they hear a message on the one of the prophets said, oh, we have God's son, you go do it. You know, they throw God into all the other gods. Oh, sure. Okay, oh, sure. Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. definitely. And, uh, <laughs> yes. You know, there, and there are Christians now who say, God told me to do this. And it blows up in their face. You know, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things. He's just lying. That's all. <laughs> all he has to do, all Hezekiah has to do is check with Isaiah. I know. We need yeah. to be. Yeah. Well, this, this was the case with Genghis Khan and Attila Khan and all of these conquerors that came from the north. Yeah. I mean, they understood that the left side of the map is where God's judgment comes from. Uh, so they knew that's their role in the world, uh, is to enact God's judgment. And they were more than happy to play that part. Mm -hmm. You know, so How bad. Uh, Attila the Hun said something like, you know, your sins must have been really terrible for the God of heaven to set me loose upon you. <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> There's a view he knew his role. He knew his role. Right. And this guy knows his role. This guy, by the way, destroyed Babylon. He knows his role as a destroyer. Yeah, yeah. He took out Babylon and then he came for Jerusalem. Wow. So. Okay. Um, let's see where I wanted to go here. Um, yes. Uh, it does seem like that's what he's saying. Yahweh. 
told me, go up and destroy this land. Of course, as you say, Connor, for Rabshakeh, Yahweh is just another god among other thousands He's of gods. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, this is next week's lesson, but uh, the actual god of the Assyrians, uh, and this is in chapter, we'll do it next week, chapter 37, uh, verse 38. His sons actually kill the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. In verse 38, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, his son strike him down and kill him. So Sennacherib is killed. The god of the Assyrians is actually this being, creature called Nisroch. So is the Bible. So I'll pass that around. I don't know if that's the actual portrait of Nisroch or not, but uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, that verse also points out what princes do. They conspire to kill the king. Um, yes. The princess, yeah. yeah. To go back to that. Yeah. Anyway, that's... Was this on a temple? Or? That was a, yes, yeah, a, a relief, a stone yeah. relief. On a wall or um, something? Yeah. And the archaeologists, you know, debate, is this really the real disc rock or is this you know, some other thing or not? Anyway, this god had an eagle head and a human body was basically what was going on with that. Does anybody have any more insight into this rock? Uh, I don't, I mean... I, I've read some, I guess, about it. It just says, you know, he was their god. It didn't. Uh, he was a god of. He was also a fertility god, I think. A lot of them were. Yeah. Yeah. The the idol, the actual statue, was supposedly made from the from wood from Noah's Ark. Yes, that uh, I read. So Sennacherib was he was uh, a renowned mountain climber, and he would. That was a way to show you know how manly he was and how you know his prowess and all of that go up to so, Ararat the story is that he yeah. found the ark and he took some of the wood and made an idol out of it you know Herodotus writes that too the Greek historian that people of his day would go up to Ararat and yeah. take off pieces of the ark make amulets out of it mm-hmm. stuff like that here's, here's what Wikipedia says uh, he was a, an Assyrian god uh, according to the Hebrew Bible so this may be all that we know about this rock could be. The name is most likely a scribal error or Nimrod. No, maybe. I don't think so. But well, I think we all know about Nimrod. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, back to <laughs> verse 10. It does seem that Rabshakeh is using the name of Yahweh here. The Lord said to me, go up against it and destroy it. This is what becomes so shocking to these these envoys from the king Eliakim and Shebna and so forth and they say in verse 11 please speak to your servants in Aramaic for we understand it do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall so I don't know what all they are saying maybe the use of the name of Yahweh is so shocking I mean they you know they, they, want, they don't want to hear it I mean it's not spoken. no no and they no, please, you know, that. Is it because he was saying the name Yahweh? Uh, well, you know, this is back up in verse 10. Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land destroy? I think Lord there is Yahweh. Yeah. So he's spoken. So is that why they're saying, don't use that language, let's talk about it? I think that's why they are. It's just so, it's so, it's so blasphemous and yeah. so shocking. Yeah. They just don't want anybody to hear it. You know? yeah. I thought it's because they didn't want the people to be discouraged, which of course... 
Well, that well, no doubt that too, right? Okay. Um, all right. He says that the Lord said unto him, yeah, I know, wow. I know. The Lord did what? Said, said unto the Lord said unto me, Rabshaka. Oh, Rabshaka. Okay. So, verse verse eleven. This kind of shocking and blasphemous idea causes the envoys, that is the Hebrew envoys, to request that they speak in Aramaic. Verse 12, But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? And probably the words are a little more down home than that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Language is cleaned up slightly here. Uh, okay, verse twelve. So again, yeah, this is dis dis disheartening. I mean, no doubt to the people that are hearing it. Verse thirteen. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. He's still speaking Hebrew here. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Um, basically, what he's saying is that neither Hezekiah can deliver you, and Yahweh has already spoken to me, and, you know, he's put me up to this. There's no hope, guys. I mean, give up. Verse 15, Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Um, okay, so now really, uh, the battle is joined. We have, as it were, Yahweh versus the king of Assyria. Uh, or we have Hezekiah and Isaiah versus the gods of this world and the kings of Assyria. So there's a physical battle, but there's also a spiritual battle being joined here. It's a battle of the gods. And that's why the ancient people saw it too. Um, 16. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Um, more literally it might read make a blessing with me what he's saying is make a pact make a covenant with me this is covenant language here so the king of Assyria is saying why don't you just make a covenant with me you'll enter an era of peace everybody will eat uh, figs under his own fig tree make wine drink his own wine and uh, you know peace. yeah uh, peace and prosperity King That's the James, offer. James says, make an agreement with me. Yeah. Present. Sounds like a tribute. Right. Make an agreement like with me. What is, read it again. Uh, make an agreement with me by a present. Uh, by a present. It sounds like a tribute. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So verse 17. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. Now... He's being honest here. <laughs> yes, make peace with me, enjoy yourselves for a while, but guess what? I'm going to deport you anyway. To a better place. 
so a better yeah. place. Juan <laughs> flying with milk and honey. Yeah. And it's going to deport them into slavery. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't call it that. So back in verse 16, again, this is covenant language. Make, you know, make, make a treaty with me, make peace with me. I read uh, further, by the way, and it said a blessing. Yeah, yeah, so make a blessing. Me. Yeah. Yeah, make a blessing with me is more probably more literal. Oh, what do they call it? Um, the Russians are doing it now, yanking people out of Ukraine, just mm -hmm. dumping them somewhere in Russia, and then bringing mm -hmm. whoever has. De yeah, it's deportation. It's deportation. Is what it is. Just, uh, they're displaced people, you know, so they're right. outside it's, their community, you know, outside their culture. Yeah, they just they want to Russify it, but uh, what's it called? It's deportation. They're deporting these people. Uh, so this is covenant language and if the people of Judah had done this made a covenant with Assyria world history and covenant history would be different but they didn't do it verse 17 uh, I've already mentioned uh, Rob Shaka's plan he's being clear about deportation uh, 18 beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any look at this? Now he's making a very a logical and historical argument. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods? And now he lists all these cities. Where are the gods or areas? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But the, they were silent and answered him not a word for the king's command was do not answer him. Then Eliakim the son of Hilkiah who was over the household and Shebna the secretary and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. Uh... Verse, back to verse 20. Who among the gods of all these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord, that is Yahweh, should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. So, the battle of the gods is joined. Uh, so, there's not only a physical confrontation here, but there's spiritual warfare going on. I mean, who who's really God? I mean, is it really Yahweh? Or is it really the demon hordes? I mean, you know. And the Assyrians don't care because they all the gods are the same to them. Well, well, yeah. So uh, I thought then that we would conclude by reading Revelation chapter twelve, verse seven, which is a piece about spiritual warfare. The battle of the gods is joined. Yahweh versus Lucifer. 12 verse 7 now war arose in heaven Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon that would be the devil and the dragon and his angels fought back there's war in heaven but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven and the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent same one who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. 
And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Here, here's what Connor mentioned already. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So you're right. Words alone are not enough. We need to be covered with the blood of the Lamb. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell on earth, in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So it's spiritual warfare all over again. And these battles of the kings are just an earthly representation of things that are going on in the heavenlies also. So, uh, so I, I encourage us to beware of spiritual war about what the devil is doing and how to fight appropriately. So that's all I have for today. We're getting close again to this question of did God really say that? Uh, I don't know what... God had made any promises to Hezekiah at this point, but he's about to. But the Assyrians don't relent. So it's a question, did, did God really say that? Or did he say that I'm going to take over your city? <laughs> exactly. That's the question. Well, all right. Thank you for your attention.